reading is from um, 1 Corinthians 12. There's just two books on in the Bible. Um, and we are reading from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. And that's, sorry, and that's on page 1059 um, in the Visitor's Bible. So we're starting with the last sentence of chapter 12. Um, but desire greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. If I speak um, human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thanks very much, Christelle, for reading. Uh, my name is James. I'm part of the team here. It's a great pleasure for me to be at Evening Church uh, with you. Just let me organise my stuff here. Well, uh, I wonder if you've ever been uh, at a wedding and witnessed a wedding faux pas, a mistake, uh, some kind of uh, hiccup, some embarrassing moment, maybe something offensive. Uh, happened at our wedding, my... Uh, Someone fainted during my father-in-law's speech. Uh, true story, so he hears about that uh, fairly often from, from me. Um, it's pretty easy to find wedding faux pas on the internet. Uh, maybe you've seen this one. They're all lined up, the bridal party lined up on the jetty, and then it collapses. Um, there's the, the happy couple getting married just on a platform by a pond, and... The old, old mate, best man, as he's handing the ring over to the celebrant, trips over and knocks the bride and the celebrant into the water. Uh, the, you could find lots more. Uh, picture, picture this wedding uh, scene. Uh, a friend of the bride and groom has just read 1 Corinthians 4-7. to and then love is patient, love is kind, all that. It's a famous passage to be read at weddings. And the minister gets up and says something like this. Um, David, Sarah, um, fictional names, uh, for a successful marriage, you will have to be patient with each other. Sarah, we know you really struggle with that. Um, you're going to have to do better. 
for a successful marriage, uh, you're going to have to be free from arrogance. David, you've always been full of yourself. Uh, you're going to have to work on that. Imagine something like that. A bit awkward, maybe ill-considered at a wedding perhaps. Uh, but you know what that would be? Uh, that would actually be a pretty faithful application of the passage in front of us tonight. Uh, because this isn't just a standalone sentimental poem about love, even though part of it sounds like that. Paul is writing to a group of people that had got love wrong. And he's writing, among other things, to correct them. We know from this unit that the presenting issue is the way they thought about spiritual gifts and spiritual things. Uh, But the Corinthian church had got it wrong. And as we uh, unpack their situation and the lessons they needed to learn, I think we'll get a lot of help in understanding why love is so important in the Christian life, not just for them, but for us, and what it looks like. So that is the agenda. There's two questions that will guide us. Firstly, why is love so important? And second, what does love look like? So first question, why is love so important? I'm kind of uh, making the assumption that it is important, and, and it is. We see that unambiguously in verses 1 to 3. So if you have your Bible open or your device, um, have a scan through them. Paul says something pretty direct and uh, confronting. He says, you could have all these kinds of spiritual gifts, uh, but without love, they amount to nothing. He, he, uses the, he refers to the gifts that the Corinthians were really keen on, speaking in tongues, prophecy, but you could add to that um, theological expertise, the ability to um, speak up front, to lead youth group, to organise things. You could do all those things, but if you don't have love, uh, it amounts to nothing. I mean, think of the people that you look up to. Uh, maybe it is the, the veteran youth leader or someone that can teach groups of people. Maybe you're imagining that they're having a big influence and God's really pleased with them. Paul's really clear, you could do those things and be of no consequence, no real value in God's eyes if it's done without love. It's it's a pretty strong statement. Verse 3 often hits me in the guts uh, because I'm someone, and I think we're a church that rightly values sacrificial service, people working hard, giving of their their time and energy and money, that's a good thing. But verse 3 says, you could give away all your possessions. Uh, I could give over my body in order to boast. In other words, I could um, serve really sacrificially and give up lots of stuff. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Clearly, love is absolutely essential. Um, Now, where the Corinthians had gone wrong... Uh, is the way they were measuring spiritual maturity. You know, what, what does the godly, mature, spirit-filled Christian look like? Remember from last week and, and these couple of chapter, chapters, there's a lot about the spirit. And they had thought uh, the really godly, spirit-filled Christian is uh, someone who has lots of impressive spiritual gifts and does lots of spiritual-looking things. Uh, but Paul says they were wrong about that. 
they're measuring Christian maturity in the wrong way. It's not those things, uh, being able to do the impressive things that look spiritual, lead, get up the front, organise, not those things, but love. And he explains why that's the case in verse 8 and through to verse 13. We'll we'll come back to verses 4 to 7. I think verse 8 is where he explains it. Um, And Neil has helpfully um, touched on some of this already. In verse 8 to 13, he makes the point that love is eternal. Um, Here's my shorthand summary of the paragraph. He says, love is eternal. It's a a fundamental feature of uh, the life as God intends it. Those spiritual gifts, they're just temporary and partial. So the key to understanding verse 8, 8 to 13, excuse me, and this whole chapter is to understand the comparison that Paul is making. Um, We see the comparisons as like thinking like a child to thinking like an adult, uh, looking in a a mirror, uh, which back then probably wasn't as good as our mirrors. The mirrors back in ancient times were probably a bit um, uh, cloudy, a bit distorted. Looking in a mirror versus seeing something face to face. So Paul's making this comparison. And the comparison is between the spiritual gifts that the Corinthians were on about, like tongues and prophecy. And see, the thing about these gifts, uh, they were designed to help one another get to know God better. It's it's like our teaching now, what I'm doing, um, where we encourage one another and and spur one another on to understand more of God and to live for him. Paul says those things are temporary and partial. They, they don't get the job done completely. Now that makes sense if you think about it, doesn't it? Because in this age, this present age, even though we're reconciled to God and we have peace with him through Jesus, we don't have God in our direct physical presence. We, we can have a relationship with him, but we don't know him fully. But Paul says a time is coming when we will know him fully. Just as God fully knows us, we will fully know him. We will be with him, standing next to him, looking at him face to face. That's what he says in verse 10. Uh, when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. I think he's talking about the new creation, when we'll be with God uh, in, in his presence. And when that arrives, that time arrives... We won't have a need for those spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues or prophetic speech or teaching. I think preachers will be out of a gig because we won't need to explain the knowledge of God to people. God will be right there. But whereas those gifts will cease to be necessary, love will continue. Love will continue. That's what he means when he says love never ends. Um, Let me put it this way. This is a very similar illustration to what Neil shared earlier. Imagine, just imagine by some special power, you could uh, visit the new creation, visit paradise where God's eternal people are there. What would you see? Um, You won't see people exercising miraculous powers, You won't see people having really deep 
the theological, intellectual discussions with big words and um, being really clever. Now, what will define life in the new creation is people loving one another. People uh, genuinely, sincerely treating other people uh, well, putting their needs before their own. Um, Eternal life, life as God intends, will be characterised by love. And this fits with what we know from the Bible at large. God himself is love. We read that sentence in 1 John, and I think John in that uh, setting is talking about the, the Trinity, how the Godhead has three persons from the beginning, and they have love between one another, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Love is not just a, a quality that's sort of necessary for this life. It, something God, it goes to the essence of who he is. And when humanity was created, we were created to love one another, to be other person-centered. And, and as God's people are being renewed, conformed to the likeness of Jesus, we're being renewed in love, our ability to love one another. Now, see, love is not, uh, not a, a quality like every, anything else. It's, it's, it's the fundamental bedrock that undergirds life and relationships the way God intends. And it will be there forever. So Paul says that is the mark of Christian maturity. That's what someone who is godly looks like. Someone that's full of the Spirit, uh, they will have love. That's Paul's big point. And the Corinthians had, had missed that. Now there's lots of implications for this. The obvious one is to pursue love, to grow in love, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but there's some other implications just in terms of how we, how we think about church and Christ, Christian living, the kinds of things we value. We have to say that uh, if you're trying to imagine or, or assess what a healthy church looks like, um, a mature church where the Holy Spirit is really at work, well, it's not necessarily a church that's full of impressive programs and people performing um, miraculous things or uh, really cool activities, impressive by the world standards. It's not those things. The mature spirit-filled church is where people love one another, where there are relationships of other person-centered uh, kindness and goodwill. The church, our church, any, any true church is meant to be a taste of heaven, um, an outpost of God's kingdom, uh, where life as God intended is, I guess, uh, re- renewing and being practiced by God's people. The mature, spirit-filled church will look like people loving each other. The same idea goes for the individual Christian. What do you, as you think about Christian maturity, growing, what are you aiming for? What, what do you look up to? Um, do you aspire to be someone that's really skillful and confident and can do things up the front, um, have some kind of important leadership role 
those aren't bad things in and of themselves, but uh, don't be mistaken. Um, real spiritual maturity, real evidence of the Holy Spirit um, looks like a person who is full of love for other people. Full of love in their, their big and their small interactions, in the way they treat people that are similar to them and those that aren't like them. Someone that's just loving when they're free and available and have capacity and someone that's loving when they're busy and stressed. Um, Maybe the most spirit-filled, mature Christian in this room is someone you don't even know. Uh, Someone that doesn't have a leadership role, someone that doesn't get up the front, but someone who just consistently and conscientiously loves other people. That's the person to aspire to be. Now, uh, this truth offers a warning to people that do have gifts and strengths and leadership functions. Uh, The warning is not to overestimate our contribution. Um, Not to overestimate our contribution, but rather to examine our heart. Uh, If you are a leader in some way, if you do have skills and strengths that you're putting to use, uh, do examine your heart. Why do you do those things? Is it uh, because it makes you feel good in some way? Is it because you get seen doing it? I don't know. I don't expect that's the case. There's wonderful, loving people here involved in service, uh, which is a great joy to see. But do examine your heart. Why do you do those things? Um, The flip side, of course, is that uh, this also says something to people amongst us that don't feel qualified. We don't feel skilled and confident and and have the the kinds of strengths to have a big impact or to take on a role. Um, The comfort to you, and, and I guess the challenge in a sense, is not to underestimate your contribution. Not to underestimate your contribution. It's not actually about, you know, how impressive your skills and abilities are. We learn that God values uh, someone serving out of love in weakness and, and lack of skill more than someone serving without love who has lots of strengths and, and abilities. Let me say that again. I think God, we, when we look at this passage, we understand what Paul's saying. We learn that God values people serving with and out of love, even if they're weak and don't have many skills. And he values that more than someone that's impressive and skillful uh, serving without love. That's pretty cool. All right. So love is really important. Love is the the measure of spiritual maturity that Paul wants us to get. What does it look like? (laughs) This is the age-old question, isn't it? What does love look like? Um, Well, Paul, he doesn't give us a definition. He resorts to a list, a descriptive list of the kinds of things love does or doesn't do. And that's what verses 4 to 7 are all about. 
Maybe they're the verses you're most familiar with. Let's just go through a couple of them. Um, Love is patient. Love is kind. means we're thinking of other people, not ourselves. How how we can help and bless them um, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. When, when we don't have that love and we're self-seeking, it issues in all kinds of attitudes that are a bit ugly. That's what we see uh, as the passage goes on. Issues like, attitudes like envy, someone that's boastful, love is not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking. Uh, love does not keep a record of wrongs. I wonder if in your your heart of hearts, you are someone that compares yourself to other people. Um, I think we all do that. Um, It's not necessarily uh, a wrong thing, but as you compare yourself to others, do you find yourself looking for and noticing faults in others because you feel kind of good about it? It makes you feel a bit bit better. Uh, Are you someone that's quick to point out every little mistake that someone makes or do you just you happy to let it go sometimes do you see on the inside when someone does something which inconveniences you how, how could they do that or do you seek to understand why they've done what they've done so I think love means our self-seeking instinctive passions are tempered and our default inclination in, in all kinds of situations is to think of what's best for the people around me, not what's best for ourselves. Now, I will, I will say a kind word here, even though it's undeserved. I will help, even though they're not going to help me. Now, love doesn't mean we endorse and, and just permit... Uh, Everything that the other person wants or needs, you can imagine how that would be a big problem, particularly when we think of some awful people who take advantage and are abusive. Love doesn't mean we become a doormat. Look at verse uh, 6. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So we don't just let uh, evil people walk over us, but we, we do have a a bias towards giving people the benefit of the doubt. Look at verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Here's my definition based on all of Paul's examples. Um, I think love is an approach to life centred on other people rather than on ourselves. An approach to life centred on other people rather than ourselves. It's a, it's a position of our inner person that flips life on its head and approaches every moment thinking, what, what can I do to help and bless them rather than advance my interests and to protect myself? Um, it's, not, it's not a sentimental feeling, uh, although it's not not less than a feeling, just doesn't depend on feelings. But love is a commitment to do good to others and and acts. It's demonstrable. It's concrete. In fact, it's 
we can't even think of love as just a, another attribute alongside others. Love is the foundation of all the godly characteristics we read about in the Bible. Love is like the, the electricity that powers a life of other person-centeredness, which will look like lots of different things. It's the electricity that, that God puts in us that powers other person-centered living in all kinds of circumstances. It's not easy to be like that, is it? To be someone of genuine love. I wonder, as you read verses 4 to 7 and you replace the word love with your name, whether it would ring true. James is patient. James is kind. That's not true. I'm telling you. James does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude. That doesn't really describe me very well. Um, what about you? See, this, as wonderful as this, this poem is, this list, it exposes our loveless hearts shows us where we, where we fall down. Of course, we might love some people some of the time pretty well. But for the most part, we fail. Now, the reason we fail, uh, the reason it's hard to be other person-centred is because life in this world trains us to serve our own interests. If I'm wrong, don't want to put it right. Uh, if I have a need, I can't rely on anyone else to, to serve it. I need to get it for myself. Um, they're busy looking after their self-interest. We find ourselves in this never-ending cycle of thinking and doing whatever serves us. Uh, it's, it's, in fact, it's so deep in us uh, that we don't even realise that's what we're doing. It feels natural to, to put number one first. And, and it is natural. It's our, it's our fallen, sinful nature to be selfish rather than selfless. Um, but how can we break that cycle? How can we break that cycle? Uh, well, I wonder if instead of putting your name uh, where the word love is, insert the name Jesus. See if it rings true. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Yes. Yes, he is. Of course he is. He, he's so patient with us, forgiving our mistakes and our sins, which seem to perpetuate and pile up. Jesus does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant. Yes, this is, this is Jesus. Of all people that had a right to boast and be arrogant, he was the son of God, but... But he was never like that. He was compassionate and kind. Jesus does not keep a record of wrongs. I think you know where I'm, what I mean. The, the question I asked was, what does love look like? Well, the answer to that is Jesus. Love looks like Jesus. And folks, we need to remember and, and lodge deep in our heart that we are the recipients and beneficiaries, the objects of this love. 
that's how we break the cycle. That's how we grow in love. Knowing that our needs have been met. We can serve others because we've been served. We can give because Jesus has given to us. We could give our whole lives over to serve others because this life is a spare. We've got eternal life to look forward to. Folks, Jesus is the measure of love and the means. He's the measure of of spiritual maturity, the measure of, of, of a life of love. And he's the means, the way we grow in love. Why don't I pray in thanksgiving uh, that we're the recipients of this love and that God would indeed fill our hearts with love that we might uh, live for the good of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we don't love others very well, very much. Um, Forgive us our sin. Thank you that in in Jesus we are the recipients and objects of your great love for us, um, demonstrated through the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Help us to dwell on the riches you've given us in him, that we might be equipped to serve others as we contemplate salvation in Jesus, grow us in love for others. Uh, And we pray for help in Jesus' name. Amen.